Good morning. All right, you may go in your Bibles with me today. Can you hear me okay? You may go in your Bibles today to Romans chapter 10. And we are going to continue on where we left off last week in Romans 10. We're going to start in verse 14. Also going to look back at 13 though. And today as we as we read, as we look at God's Word, I want you to think about if you are a Christian, you know that your faith, your belief in God changed everything in your life when you became a believer. You know that the gospel results in changed lives because you've seen it in your own life. You can look to your own experience and maybe you can look to the experience of people around you and you know that trust in God changes everything, changes the trajectory of your life. But then you look out into the world and you look around and you ask, okay, well, if that's true, that faith in Jesus transforms things and changes things so much like it did in me, why isn't that same transformation taking place in the life of my friend or my parent or my child or my neighbor or name the person? Why aren't they seeing that transformation? Why don't they seem to understand the beauty of Jesus, the mercy that he's offering, the goodness of his gift, the goodness of his death on the cross, the salvation that he's offering. Why isn't that getting through? Why isn't it penetrating? Right? Why are they living for themselves over this, this sad, depressed lifestyle apart from Christ? Why isn't the message working in them? And today, that's basically the same question that Paul is going to ask here in Romans. He's going to seek to answer that question for the Romans, all right? Because I should say they're the ones that are kind of asking that question. He's going to try to give them an answer for why is that? If God's word has been rightly preached, and in this context, he's going to talk about the Jews. If God's word has been rightly preached to the Jews, to the people of Israel, why are most of them not coming to faith? Because that was the case in his era. Some were but most were not coming to faith. And yet you have this other people, the Gentiles, the non, those are non-Jews. If you're not familiar with that term, what does Gentile mean? Anyone who's not a Jew. But you've got a significant number of Gentiles coming to faith while you've got the majority of Jews resisting Jesus. And maybe you've asked that similar question. Why do so-and-so come to faith and so-and-so doesn't? Well, the key question in our text today is this then. For that person who hasn't come to faith, has the word of God failed? Was God's word not powerful enough? Did it lack something? Did it need more? Has the word of God failed? And Paul is going to say, absolutely not. In Romans 9, 6, that's kind of the question that started this whole discourse. You got to go back if you missed the last few weeks. But Paul says the word of God has not failed. And all of what we're going to read today is an outworking or approving of that statement. Paul's going to identify the problem, and the problem is not with the message. The problem is not with the gospel. The message isn't faulty. It's not insufficient. It's not even a problem with the preacher. But the problem, Paul's going to say, lies with the hearer because the message is perfect for salvation. The problem lies with the hearer and the sinful way we as humans, as created beings, respond to that message. Because we don't always respond to Jesus and his truth the way we should. We respond in unbelief. And so that's what we're going to see here today. So on the surface, maybe you've wondered this. On the surface, it might look like God has not fulfilled his promises, but he has. 
And so we're going to see how God saves people. And then we're going to see why God's word has not failed. So read with me. Romans 10, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter here. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? This is, this is the Jews. Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And first Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. So as we read that, I want to back up a little bit. Paul, throughout the last few chapters, chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10, has spent a lot of time explaining how salvation is ultimately the work of God, right? How God is sovereign, how he controls all this, and how at the end of the day, he is the potter, we are the clay. He molds us for honorable use, for dishonorable use. In our passage last week, Paul explained to the Romans how righteousness is achieved by faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are two of the solas. Reformation Day, right, was on Tuesday. Wednesday? Is that when it was? My week's all off. Oh, it is the 31st is Reformation Day. Yeah. So those were two of the solas, though. What was the Reformation all about? Faith alone in Christ alone. And you saw that here in the first part of chapter 10. But at the very end of the passage last week, Paul makes this famous statement that I want to read to you because I think this is also key again leading into the rest of the chapter. In verse 13, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that truth applies to all types of people, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to all nations. And now in our passage here, Paul's going to back up and he's going to try to analyze and explain the process. Okay, what then does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? He's telling them, you've got to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. How does that happen? What does that process of salvation look like to become saved? And so he begins by showing how people can be saved from hell and have this eternity apart from God, at least from the human or earthly perspective. And again, that's not to ignore the ultimate work of the Holy Spirit in drawing people to salvation. That's not to ignore the God perspective or the God doing. It's just that here now he's going to focus on the human element. He's going to focus on you. What must you, Christian, do? God is going to convict people of sin through his Holy Spirit, but you have a part to play in that. In other words, salvation doesn't occur in a vacuum. God is pleased to have ordained you to be involved. You as his people. And so there's six steps, six steps, excuse me, that he outlines here in the process of how a person is saved. 
And note that they're listed backwards. So I'm going to flip them. So stay with me. I'm going to go in chronological order. So we're going to try something different here and go backwards. How is a person saved? Paul says, number one, well, someone has got to be sent. Someone else, a believer, has got to be sent. Verse 15, how can they preach unless they are sent? Right above that, how can they hear without a preacher? So someone's got to be sent. God ordains a different person to be sent to the person who needs to hear about Jesus, to those who have a need to go, to go, to move, to preach Jesus. And as Christians, though, isn't this how you were saved? Didn't someone at one point, wasn't someone sent to you? Who was sent to you? Think back in your life. Was it a parent? For a lot of us, it was. Was it a friend? Was it a pastor? Was it a neighbor? I don't know. Was it your spouse? Was someone sent to you? Indeed, they were. Maybe it was many someones. Maybe it was a lot of someones and it kind of accumulated over time. But God sent someone to you and they were faithful to go. They were faithful to be sent. Because all Christians are, are part of this group that's sent. It's not like there's just some group of super Christians that are sent and they're the elite Navy SEALs. They're going in and everyone else does nothing. No, it's all, all Christians are sent. And importantly, get this, in Scripture, when you see Christians being sent, this is really important, it's a direct result of Jesus being sent because the Father sent the Son. And our mission to be sent is a result of the Father sending the Son. And among the persons of the Trinity, Jesus being sent was the plan from before all creation. That was the plan from before the foundation of the world that Jesus would go in order that he would redeem a people for himself, for his own glory. And so speaking to the disciples, Jesus says this in John 10, 21. He says, first off, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Do you see the, the connection there? As the Father has sent me, Jesus, I also send you, my disciples. So you're not being sent on your own, but you're being sent because Jesus was sent first to achieve salvation and he was successful. So who has God sent you to? That's the million dollar question. Who has God sent you to? Is it your children? Is it your parent? Is it your friend? Is it your neighbor? God is sending you somewhere to someone if you are, if you are a believer. If you're in him, who's he sending you to? I want you to think about that this morning, because we're told that the feet of those who bring the good news, the gospel, their feet are beautiful. And that's a quote from Isaiah 52. If you see there back in verse 15, it says, how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And if you're the one bringing the good news, you have those beautiful feet and This passage in the Old Testament was meant to show the Israelites hope in their Babylonian captivity. But here, Paul's taking it and he's using it in a broader sense to reference the coming of the Messiah, of ultimate salvation. This passage is about salvation. But how are your feet beautiful? Well, in an era before modern communication, your feet are used to carry the message from person to person. You've got to go. Your feet are 
are the means of transportation of getting the gospel to someone else. And I don't know about you, but when you read a verse about beautiful feet, I don't think I would normally describe my feet as beautiful. I think they're kind of ugly, actually. I have like a black toe that I ruined running like three years ago, and it's never healed because kids step on it every day. (laughs) And so my feet are kind of ugly. Some of y'all have smelly feet. I have kids with smelly feet. I won't say which one. Some of them need to change their socks more often. But when I think of feet, I don't really think of beauty. No, no, not so much. Why then does he say the feet of the messenger are beautiful? Well, because they convey the character of the message being brought. And the character of the message being brought is beautiful. The message is beautiful. It's one of salvation. It's one of hope. It's one of a future. It's one of life. And if the coming message is a valuable treasure, then the feet that bring it are pretty valuable and pretty beautiful too. And so that's why he says, how beautiful are your feet when you go? And how beautiful, think back in your own life, how beautiful were the feet of the person who brought the gospel to you? Pretty good, right? You're glad they did. And wouldn't you like to be that person to bring that gospel and that truth to someone you love? I think we all would. That's our heart's desire. And so the first thing here we see with Paul is we are sent. How is salvation achieved? God sends you. But then, number two, you have to preach. So you're sent, but you're sent to do something. You're not just to go walk around and keep your mouth shut. You're sent to preach. And that means you've got to open your mouth. You've got to communicate the good things Jesus has done. And how can they preach unless they are sent? How can they hear without a preacher? You share what Jesus did for you. You share the joy he brings you. You can share your own personal testimony. You can talk about your life, how God transformed you. And so you've got to go. You've got to now go and you've got to communicate. You've got to communicate how God is the powerful creator of the universe, how he owns and controls everything by virtue of his creation. You communicate how we as humans mucked it all up. We messed things up. When he made it perfect, we destroyed it. By virtue of our sins, starting with Adam, we're all from birth corrupted. We have this sin nature. It corrupts us. It blinds us to see the beauty of God. And you've got to communicate that truth as hard as it may be. But then you've also got to communicate how Jesus loved us, how Jesus loves sinners. He loved us enough to come into this world, to take on flesh, to live a sinless life, to sacrifice himself in a death that he didn't deserve and rise in victory from the grave. You've got to communicate all that. And then... You've got to communicate how all of us must repent of sin. Repent of sin. Place our trust in Jesus alone if we want to achieve that free gift of salvation. And I believe as we go to communicate that message, as we're sent to preach, that our greatest failure in preaching is not that we don't know the message well enough. It's a lack of personal boldness. I mean, I I went to this um, conference on evangelism a couple weeks ago with Christian Challenge, right? A couple of you guys went. And one of the things that struck me there was you don't need to discover some brilliant new method to share Jesus. You just, you don't. There's no such thing. You don't even need to necessarily learn more of the Bible, although you should. Don't take that quote out of context. Don't quote me as saying you don't need to learn more Bible. You do. But that's not the problem, right? Right? The problem is 
you need to love someone more than you fear being uncomfortable. You've got to love that person more than you fear rejection or the discomfort of sharing the gospel with them. And so when you preach, you've got to trust in God to speak through you. And I want to give you a note, three things to pray for. Pray for, number one, if you're, if you're concerned, how can I do this? Well, first, you've got to pray for a burden for the lost. Do you have a burden for people who don't know Jesus? From your friends right down to your strangers, people you don't know. Does it break your heart that they don't know Jesus? Has it ever even brought you to tears that they don't know Jesus? So you got to pray for a burden for them, number one. But then two, you got to pray for an opportunity to witness. Pray that God would give you time with them, time and an opportunity to share. And then lastly, the third thing, pray for boldness. Pray for boldness to go and proclaim Jesus. So pray for a burden for the lost, pray for an opportunity to witness, and then pray for the boldness to go and to do it and not sit on your couch because you are sent to preach. So that's number two. Number three, you're sent, you go to preach, and then someone hears. Verse 14, it says, how can they believe without hearing him? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they believe without hearing him? And how can they hear without a preacher? So the next thing, someone's got to hear. Now, let's be realistic. Not everyone's going to want to hear, right? Some people don't want to hear. You're never even going to get to this step because there's certain people who aren't going to give you the time of day. Certain people are going to hate Jesus so much they're just not going to want to hear him. But some people, I think many people, more than you might suspect, have the Holy Spirit prompting them. And so they're going to want to listen. They're going to want to hear. In fact, in Isaiah 55, here's what God says about his word. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For just as the rain and the snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and make it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat. He's giving a rain analogy. So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I have sent it to do. I want to emphasize the last part of that. God's word, he says, will accomplish what he pleases and it will prosper in what he sends it to do. If he wants it done, it's going to happen. Now, I don't know if that's the same as what you want God's word to do, but he's going to make it do what he wants it to do. And so when the word of God is preached and heard, it will produce the effect that God desires it to have. How often does Jesus say throughout scripture, he who has ears to hear, let him hear? All the time. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's because oftentimes people simply don't have the ears to hear. Some do, some don't. Don't have the ears to hear. But when the Holy Spirit has worked in us and he's opened our ears, we're told in verse 17, back in our passage here today, that hearing produces faith. Hearing produces something. It leads to something. It leads to faith. You have faith because you heard. You heard the word of God. And so we have to pray that as we preach the gospel, God would indeed open the ears of people to hear because otherwise there's no hope. If it's just us in our own power, thinking we're great communicators, there's no hope. It doesn't work. 
God's got to open the ears of people to hear. So that's number three, hearing. Number four, how can one be saved? You're sent, you preach, someone hears, but then believing. There's belief. Once we've heard about Jesus, we can now believe, or you might say we can now faith in Jesus. We can now trust in Jesus. Now I want to think about this word belief because we tend to think of belief as an acknowledgement of a fact. We, we sometimes reduce it a little too much, and we think that's all belief is, is it's an acknowledgement of a fact. So when we hear this word, for instance, we might think, I believe the high temperature is 88 degrees today. We might think, okay, I believe the Diamondbacks lost the World Series. I'm sorry, so tragic, right? Those are beliefs we have. I believe those things to be true. I believe it to be true that they lost some baseball games. But is that all belief means in the Bible? Because in this case, if you're talking about Jesus, if we're to reduce belief down to an unbiblical definition, it would be something like, well, okay, I believe Jesus. I believe that he's fully God and fully man. I believe that he died and rose. It's like the bare minimum. It's like the facts, right? But is that how belief or faith, is that how faith is rightly defined? No, I don't think it is. It's not just a mental assent. What I'm getting at here is that true belief or true faith is more than what happens up in your head. It's more than just checking a box and saying, yeah, that's a truth. Yeah, that's a truth. In fact, James speaks to this pretty straightforward. James 2.19. He says, you believe that God is one. Well, that's a true belief. Good. God is one in three persons. Good. But even the demons believe that and they shudder. So that's mental assent. Well, the demons have a mental assent toward truth. They're right. But that has nothing to do with salvation. And that's the problem for us. If we're to understand true saving faith, we have to realize it's not just the facts. I mean, the facts are great. The facts that fit in our brains, that's fine. But it's not just that. We can't reduce belief to facts. But ultimately, that is, unfortunately, the extent of how many people think of faith or think of faithing, trusting, believing in Jesus. The reality is that saving belief or saving faith in Jesus involves much, much more. What does it involve? Saving faith involves trust, and it is active. It is active, and it involves a full trust, a full putting everything you have into the basket of Jesus. It's an action. It moves, right? It's not just here, but it's here, and it's here, right? True faith moves you. It's not just check the box, yeah, that's a true statement kind of faith. And that's what actually brings people to salvation. That's what actually brought you to salvation. You might have had all those, yeah, I believe this, I believe that, I believe that. Great. But what brought you to salvation is true faith. It was more than that mental ascent. And so I want you to think about this now, though. Is your faith in Jesus a trusting faith that produces salvation? Or maybe, I don't know, maybe is it just that acknowledgement of facts? Is that all you thought belief was? Was it just check the box, that's true, that's true? But if it is, I want to encourage you today, the believing, the belief that Paul is talking about here, that belief that Jesus is calling you to, is a trusting faith. 
right? It's a faith that is going to move you. So that's belief number four. We are sent, we preach, someone hears, then there's a belief. And number five, calling. How else is someone saved? Well, now you got to call. Verse 14, how then can they call on him in whom they have not believed in? And if you jump back to last week, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what does this mean, calling? Well, I think it's meant to invoke images of calling out for help, calling out for aid, for assistance. If you're in the middle of the forest with a broken leg, you're going to call out, right? You're going to yell, you're going to do something to get attention. That's what this is. We're calling out to Jesus to get his attention, to ask for aid, to ask for help, because we recognize that we can't save ourselves. And if we recognize I can't save myself, then what choice do I have but to call for aid, to call for help, to call for salvation? You remember in uh, The Lord of the Rings, right? Most of you have seen that movie. Some of you have. You've read the books, maybe. Gondor's being attacked, right? All the little bad guys, the orcs or whatever, are gathering at their gates. And what do they do? Well, they call for aid. They light those little beacons on fire. And all the little beacons go across the land. And then the other king in Rohan goes, oh, they're calling for aid. We'll go help them. Well, that's the idea here. You call to Jesus for aid. He comes and he does much more than help you. He saves you. So what choice do we have but to call for aid? If we're living under that false impression that we can work our way to salvation, then why would we need to call out? If I think I can do it, why would I call? But I can't do it. And that's the point here. The point is we need Jesus for salvation, and so we call. And so, guys, we've got to remember to look at ourselves rightly. We can't think too highly of ourselves. We can't be puffed up with what we can do or how we can please God. There's no amount of righteousness that we can generate that is going to please God. And so we've got to call. Call to him. In Psalm 50, 15, God says, Call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. Call on me in your day of trouble. If you recognize that your trouble is you need salvation, call to God for rescue. Don't look to yourself. Call to God today. And what results, what happens when you do that? The very last thing, salvation. The whole end of the chain, what it's really getting at here, salvation. This is what we've all been leading up to. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling, salvation. That was what Jesus was working to achieve. And in salvation, Jesus saves us. And he saves us not only from our own sin, Yes, from our own sin. But even more so, have you ever thought about Jesus saved you from the wrath of God? Jesus, in accomplishing your salvation, saved you from the wrath of God against sin, that punishment that you were due. And the sinfulness of our lives is punished, but that punishment is taken and paid for by Jesus. And he dies on the cross a sinner's death. And that righteousness of Jesus is awarded or granted or imputed to you. It's given to you. You inherit an eternal reward, which is life forever in heaven with the Lord Jesus. That is salvation. And what do we see in all of this? How do we sum this whole couple of verses up? 
about sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling, salvation. Well, if God has ordained you, and I believe he has, go and play that role in the salvation of others. Go and be the beautiful feet. But get this, if you failed, don't beat yourself up over it. Accept God's mercy. Accept his grace in knowing that you will never be perfect. And so if you know that there were people you were supposed to witness to and you didn't do it, repent of that, but don't beat yourself up over it because God has given you mercy and he's going to give you many more opportunities to go and witness, maybe to that person, maybe to others, but he's going to give you more time. And I have a feeling that most of you guys know someone, you know people who need this salvation. And I want you to back up, start at the beginning and pray for them. Pray for them and then go and preach because you were sent. I want you to go before God, think about this. Go before God and ask him, are you sending me to this person? Are you sending me to that person? I don't know, because again, it's going to be different for each of you, but you're sent. So who is God sending you to? Pick a few people, write them down, pray for them today. But now, I want to connect us to to the second half, to what Paul is really getting at here, all right? Some of you, you've gone, you've shared Jesus, and he was rejected, right? You've had that experience You go and you share Jesus and that friend is like, nope, not interested. Don't want to hear it. Be gone. Well, if that's the case, and we've most all experienced that, I want you to hear now part two because this is the dilemma Paul's dealing with. God's word has not failed when it's rejected. It has not failed. You have not failed when you've gone and preached it and it's rejected. And most importantly, God's word has not failed. Remember, that's the question Paul's trying to answer here to the Romans. Hey, we've been preaching this word, all these Jews, and guess what? Most of them said no. So has the word of God failed? That's the dilemma. That's the question you've got to answer too. And you've got to come up with no. It has not failed. Look at verse 18 with me here. He says, But I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. They did hear. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the end of the world. That's a quote from Psalm 19, by the way. Paul's quoting Old Testament all throughout this. If your Bible has it in italics or in bold, those are Old Testament quotations. And he quotes from Psalm 19 to show that, okay, number one, yes, Israel certainly did hear the message of the gospel. The Jews are hearing the message of the gospel. And while there is a sizable number of Jewish believers coming to faith, the majority rejected Jesus and cut themselves off from salvation. And so did the word of God fail? If Israel did hear about Jesus, what's the problem? Well, maybe they just didn't understand. Did they just not understand the message? They heard it and it confused them? Well, he answers that in verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that that lacks understanding. So did Israel understand? Actually, the answer is yes. 
They did understand. It was told to them in the Old Testament. But what exactly did they understand? Well, they understood that the inheritance of God would be given to the Gentiles, would be given to a people who are lacking understanding, a nation that lacks understanding. And the Gentiles had not previously had favor with God. Now, you do see plenty of examples in the Old Testament of Gentiles being saved. But as a general rule of thumb, it's not until now in this new era, this new covenant time, that the Gentiles are in huge numbers starting to flood into the kingdom of God. And non-Jews are becoming the recipients of God's favor and of God's salvation in huge numbers. And so Paul is quoting their own scriptures to the Jews, to the people of God, to say that, okay, Deuteronomy said this, Isaiah made this truth clear to you. You've been told this is what would happen, and here's what is happening. So if you think the word of God failed, no. This is just what God wanted to do in this time, in this place. And so should it come as a surprise that most of those coming to salvation are Gentiles? No, because here's what Moses said about it. Here's what Isaiah said about it. It should not be a surprise at all because the Old Testament makes it clear this is what would happen. And then he says to them, okay, so in verse 20, Isaiah says, furthermore, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. Has the word of God failed in the lives of these folks, of these Gentiles? No. The Gentiles, they were not seeking after God. They were not asking for God. It's not like this was on their bucket list of things to do and they went and finally did it. No. I mean, well, and honestly, go back to Romans 3. Who seeks after God to begin with? Does anyone really seek after God? No. But but especially not the Gentiles. They were certainly not seeking after God. We certainly were not, for those of us who most of you in here fall into that category of Gentile. Why then? Why then? Well, it's simply that God chose to reveal himself to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews across the world for his own glory and so that scripture might be fulfilled. And now, contrast this, all right? Contrast how God is bringing the Gentiles to salvation with how Israel is treating God in verse 21. So you've got all these Gentiles coming to salvation, but then verse 21 to Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands. I've held out my hands to a disobedient and a defiant people. That is Israel. And so you have Gentiles, those who didn't seek God, being found by God, while Israel stands defiant. And there's quite a contrast there, isn't it? Quite a contrast between the Gentiles and the Jews as a, as a whole. Of course, we know there are many exceptions there, but as a whole. But now, make another contrast. you got the contrast between the Gentiles and the Jews and their response to the message of salvation. But then contrast the defiant posture of Israel toward God with his posture toward them. Did you see that? What's the posture of God toward Israel? My hands are open. I'm waiting. But what's the posture of Israel toward God? I'm just going to do this for a minute. Okay. This is their pot. This is what they have to do. 
Nope. Don't want to hear it. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So that's Israel toward God. Do you see the contrast again? I'm waiting. And then, nope. And so in regard to the Jews, has the word of God failed? Well, absolutely not. Because the problem isn't with the message. The problem is with the listener in this case, right? The problem is with the people hearing it. And I think about us, I think about our situation, and perhaps we're faced with something similar. Perhaps we're not in that different of a situation as the Jewish believers in 60 AD or so were. We notice, now we're, I don't want to make like a perfect connection here, right, of America to Israel, because there's no such thing. There's no such connection there. But what I do think is similar is that we notice that although some of our countrymen, some of our fellow Americans are being saved, lots of our friends and neighbors hear about God's word and they go, mm-mm, mm-mm, And then we look around the world and we look to other countries. We look to Africa and we look to Asia and we see God's word expanding rapidly, so rapidly in some places. So rapidly it's hard to count in many countries. And we look at that rapidly expanding Christian influence in all these countries countries that traditionally didn't really have much in the way of Christian influence, didn't really have much in the way of Christians. And then we're tempted to ask, well, has the word of God failed for us? Because it doesn't seem to be doing here what it's doing over there. And that's kind of the situation these Jews are facing. And so have you ever asked yourself this question? Have you ever dealt with what Paul is trying to deal with here? Has the word of God failed? Isn't there something wrong with God's word? No one wants to hear it. No one wants to listen to it. Isn't there something wrong with the Bible? Paul says, absolutely not. And I think that is something that we have to hear and we have to internalize as Christians. There really is not something wrong with God's word. We have to live as though the Bible is sufficient to bring people to salvation because it is sufficient, right? We talk a lot about biblical authority, right, as being one of our core values because the Bible, the Word of God, is our authority. We have no other leg to stand on. But you could even go further and say, is the Bible sufficient? Is it good enough? Is the Word of God enough to bring someone to salvation? Because we sometimes... And I don't know if we always do this on purpose. I think this is subconscious because we lack faith in God's word. But we sometimes live as if God's word has failed. We act as if, okay, maybe it's not quite good enough. So what are some ways we do that? And I'll bet you all have done these, all of these. Because I I look at myself and I've done all these, all right? So let me give you a couple ways I think we live wrongly. We live wrongly and we act as though God's word has failed, even though if up here we know, okay, maybe it hasn't, but then we kind of degrade down and we think, okay, maybe it has failed. So what do we do? How do we live wrongly? How do we act as though God's word has failed? Well, first, we feel like our skill level has to convince someone to be saved. Have you ever felt that? Mm -hmm. We talked about that whole chain of salvation going on there. 
and you feel like it's up to my skill level. Like, I have to do this. I just have to be perfect in everything I say. And if I get a word wrong, they're doomed to hell forever because of me. Have you ever felt that? And so do you feel like you have to convince someone? Like it all rides on your winsome speech? Or do you trust that God's word is sufficient for salvation? Or to sometimes, maybe you feel this. Maybe you feel this way. Do you ever feel that you just aren't good enough to witness? Like I, I just don't have enough Bible knowledge. I'm unable to be that beautiful feet that bring the good news because my Bible knowledge is kind of rudimentary. Well, wouldn't just opening up the Bible and reading it work, for one? But if you're tempted to think this, and I think we often are, it's because in the back of our mind, what are we believing? We're believing there's something insufficient or there's something wrong with God's word. And so, like, I can't just read the Bible to them. Like, I got to just... No more, no more, no more. And then maybe I can go do it. But are we trusting that God's word is sufficient because it's not about you and it's not about your great knowledge? Sharing Jesus is not about you. It's about God working through you. It's about God working through his word through you. And so has the word of God failed? No, absolutely not. It has not. But how else do we sometimes act as though God's word has failed? Well, Maybe you're tempted to hide parts of the Bible when you witness or to just minimize parts of the Bible. You think if maybe I can just squeak in the less offensive parts of Scripture, then my friend is going to listen. I can convince them to believe if I just tell them the good stuff and I leave out some of the not-so-good stuff. We're ashamed of certain parts of the Bible. We're ashamed that the Bible says Jesus is the only way to heaven. We're ashamed that the Bible says hell is a real place where sinners go. We're ashamed that the Bible says everyone is a bad person. Everyone's sinful, including you and me. Or maybe we're ashamed of the Bible passages where God executes people for sin. And so we don't want to share that with someone. As if pagans have any moral reason to object to killing anyway, right? What, what ethical standard do they have to object to killing? They steal from our morality in order to criticize our God, which is outrageous, and it makes me want to pull my hair out and scream, but that's another sermon for another day. I just hate that when people use our morality to criticize our God as though they have any morality apart from God that's objective. None. It's ridiculous. But anyway, another, that's a different sermon. So maybe you don't want to talk about God's wrath against sin. There's all these things in the Bible that maybe we get ashamed of or want to hide, right? But functionally, what it comes down to is this. We get scared, and we won't preach the whole counsel of God's word because we don't think it's good enough. We just think it lacks something. And we just think it lacks something, and so we do nothing. We just do nothing. Luke 9, 26, Jesus says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. So are we to be ashamed of Jesus and his words? No, no, we are not. But again, when we are, 
Trust in God. Trust in his mercy. Yes, you will fail, but yes, he's a good God who loves you and he will save you even when you are not faithful to him. But maybe for us, maybe what we should do, the best course of action instead of hiding scripture would just be to let it loose. Maybe we need to just let it go. Let it loose. Let it attack. Let it bring the results that God ordained it to bring in his providential hand like that verse we read in Isaiah. Let the scripture loose. Read it. Preach it. Charles Spurgeon, you know, is one of the famous preachers of the 1800s. He had a good quote on this. He said, Suppose a number of persons were to take into their heads that they had to defend a lion. He's comparing Scripture to a lion here. There he is in the cage, and I would suggest to them that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. Do you see the analogy there? Maybe we should just let the Scripture out and let him take care of himself and let the chips fall where they may. Because has the word of God failed? No, absolutely not. We can have confidence in it. But then the third thing, okay, the third way we act that I can see as though God's word has failed, this is corporate. This is all of us together. Some of that is individualized. This last one's corporate. How do we act as though God's word has failed? Well, again, we think it depends on our skill as we hide parts of scripture, but then what do we do corporately together? We don't trust its sufficiency in our church services. When we gather together, we act as though God's word is not enough for us. We try to spice up our church services. We try to attract people by carnal means, by worldly means. We're tempted to think that we can do a better job of drawing people in and drawing people to salvation than God's word can. But is that true? No, no, it's not. But there's this temptation in the back of our minds. We think, well, maybe, maybe if I can just keep this guy who's not a Christian entertained, maybe if I can keep him entertained and then slip in a little bit of Jesus here and there from time to time, maybe I can bring this guy to salvation. But again, it's, it's not about us, it's about God. But the goal starts to become having fun. And the exposition of God's word, the prayer starts to take a back seat to the fun. And, and there's nothing wrong with having a little fun, of course. I like, I like that. But is the goal of church to be having fun? I don't think it is. I think we're missing the mark there when we're making it about fun. The goal of the church is to glorify God. And we do that by worshiping him, by encouraging one another to godly living, by growing in our walk with the Lord. That is our goal when we gather together here as a church is to glorify God, honor him, and encourage one another. If we're trying to spend all our time on on fun, then we're likely missing out on time that could be better spent doing the things God calls us to do. And also, I would add also that that approach tends to result in, in the seats being filled oftentimes with people who aren't even believers, although they might think they are, but, but they're there for the fun. They're not there for the word of God and they're not there for Jesus because they love Jesus. They're there because it's a good way to spend a Sunday morning and it's, you know, you get to see your friends and hang out. And so if we are truly converted, guys, if we're truly believers, then I think we're going to enjoy learning God's word. I think there's going to be some meaning in it to us. I think we're going to like praying together. I think we're going to like hearing God's word if we're truly saved.
And so is God's word sufficient in our corporate gatherings? I think it is. Has the word of God failed for us? No, absolutely not. And guess, guess what? Even furthermore, God's word is sufficient in your daily life, not just unto salvation, but God's word is sufficient to instruct your life as a Christian, the things you do on a daily basis. So you want to know, how should you respond in a difficult work situation? I think God's word is sufficient to help you answer that question. Should you date or marry a certain person? God's word can answer that question. How do you get along with that difficult person in your life? God's word can answer that question. How should I disciple my child? God's word can answer that question. How do I live and interact with a world that hates Jesus? God's word can answer that question. It's going to provide the principles for Christian living. And so at the bottom of the day, or at the end of the day, excuse me, at the bottom of the barrel, here's what it comes down to. Here's the reality. The message isn't flawed, but the person is. The message of God has no flaws, but the people you're preaching to do. And so preach. Go and do it. People are born dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians tells us that quite clearly. No one seeks after God. Romans tells us that quite clearly. The reason they don't come to Jesus when you preach Jesus is because humans naturally hate Jesus with every ounce of our bodies and our souls and all that we have. And it's only when the Holy Spirit convicts us and draws us that we begin to respond positively to Jesus, like Romans 9 told us. And so the word of God is sufficient. We have to believe this. Sufficient for salvation. Sufficient for the life of the church. Sufficient to direct your daily life. But do you trust that? That's the question today. Do you really, really trust that at the end of the day? The rejection of God's proclamation of God's truth by a fallen, sinful human being has no bearing on the strength and power of that proclamation. It just doesn't. But the rejection of God's word does mean that those who reject it are blind, as we once were. That that person is a slave to sin, as we once were. It does mean that. But it doesn't mean that God's word has failed. It doesn't mean that God's word is insufficient. So what should you do? Well, love the person who is blind. Love the person who is a slave to sin. Love them enough to go and preach. Love them enough to do what God has called you to do. Here's our central truth. Here's the big picture in this passage. God's word has not failed simply because some reject Jesus. It hasn't. And if you get anything from today, get that. God's word has not failed simply because some people don't come to salvation when you preach. And so, Scripture says the word of God, it's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. We read that at the beginning, right? It divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges you. It judges the thoughts, the attitudes of your heart. And it will succeed in all that God desires it to do. So is the word of God enough? Yes. Yes, it is. And it has it failed? No. No, it has not. What must you do? Call to response. Turn away from doubt and trust God's word is sufficient. 
Trust it as sufficient. And because it's sufficient, go and preach, go and proclaim. Because again, you are the one who has been sent. You go back to that chain, you were sent, not the Navy SEALs. Well, if they're Christians, then they were sent. But you were sent to proclaim that beautiful message. It is, and it is beautiful, isn't it? The gospel is a really beautiful message and you have the beautiful feet. So go because you were sent to proclaim that message of salvation to the world. And even when the response is not what you desire, and hey, it, it isn't always what we desire, but trust, trust that God's word is what you need. Trust that God's word will accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. And you don't have to change it. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to spice it up because God's word is sufficient. It is powerful and it will do what God wants it to do at the end of the day. Trust in him. Trust in Christ. Look to him for salvation and for sufficiency in his word. And trust, trust in that. And as you do, I think our mindset starts to change a little bit. We start to have more of a victorious mindset. I don't know how else to frame it, right? When we, when we think that it's all about us and we go and proclaim Jesus and that person rejects it, we suddenly have a defeatist mindset, right? But if we understand that the end goal is faithfulness and that we have been faithful in preaching, now we've succeeded and there's a victorious mindset. And so trust in God, trust in God and go out in victory today. Go out in victory as you proclaim his good news because it's a beautiful thing, beautiful calling to have. So revel in your walk with him and then go, go and share. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given this great salvation to us. Lord, we in and of ourselves know um, that we have often failed, that we have often wandered away from you and we have failed to trust in your word. And we failed to trust in your word, but despite that, Lord, you have mercy and you have grace. You have peace for us as your children. So Lord, today, give us courage, give us boldness, give us the love for others to go and proclaim your word Give us, Lord, a heart that rests on that rests on the power of your word, that rests on your sufficiency. Help us not to fear and help us not to look to ourselves, but instead, Lord, help us to look to you, trusting that you are enough and that you have given us eternal life and that you, Lord, seek to give that eternal life to others if we will simply be faithful and be sent. And we will go and we will preach. So, Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in your word as revealed to us through scripture. And Lord, help us to rejoice in that victory that you have given us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.